Hey folks, this is Bill Cleveland from the Center for the Study of Art and Community. I'm happy to announce the opening broadcast of the third season of our podcast, Change the Story, Change the World. Now, responding to requests from a number of new listeners, this bonus episode is a reprise of our inaugural show called Genesis, which, of course, shares the podcast's origin story. This will be followed next week by episode 63, the first of two shows featuring Liz Lerman, the renowned choreographer, author, activist, and educator. In these two episodes, we'll talk about Liz's early years, her career as a heretic, the critical response process, the Heisenberg Principle, the dancers of the third age, the power of the horizontal, and how dance can make the world a better place. This is Change the Story, Change the World. Welcome to 2023. The truth is a weapon and The race is right It's cold when you're living in The hanging on In the hanging on, it's probably the saddest song I've ever written, but it's it's more complicated than that because you see the unfortunate story it represents also precipitated its creation so for me it's also a song of redemption one of many that have emerged over the years that have both taught me firsthand about the healing power of human creativity and to put it bluntly probably saved my life Center for the Study of Art and Community, this is Change the Story, Change the World, a chronicle of art and transformation. I'm Bill Cleveland. Bad home, drugs, rock and roll, prison. A not uncommon and fairly predictable trajectory, but not really especially when you throw in the National Cathedral Choir, a geodesic dome, and the stubborn belief that art can save the world. You've tuned in to the first episode of Change the Story, Change the World. In this first chapter, we share a very personal and no doubt highly biased account of how I came to believe that assertion with all my heart and soul. It's a journey of many decades. It begins in the leafy suburbs of our nation's capital around the time that America started losing what some have called its innocence. Along the way, we will encounter hippie communes, the requisite drugs, sex, and rock and roll, art colonies in prison, and armies of artists doing battle with the likes of Slobodan Milosevic, Paul Pot, and the US Department of Justice. This week on Change the Story, Change the World, I share how my story crosses paths with the early history and extraordinary growth of the global community arts movement. Story, story, story. Part one. I'm a lucky man. Lucky and incredibly fortunate to be sure. 
I'm a white guy who grew up in the suburbs with good public schools and a swimming pool down the street, all obvious markers of middle-class white privilege in post-World War II America. But no, what I think proved to be the real impetus for what I now consider my charmed life came from a different, less obvious place, a place that has much more to do with survival than the silver spoon. You see, the story unfolding in the Cleveland house was, like too many others I came to know, not what it seemed. My brother, sister, and I grew up in a slow-motion nightmare born of my parents making what some folks called bad choices, and I called just doing bad shit when they drank too much. Don't get me wrong, I, I love my parents, they taught me a lot, but sometimes bad is just bad. The obvious antidote was, of course, to split as soon as possible. So, as we came of age, the three of us ran in different directions. Predictably, the compass for my own escape pointed, well, nowhere. Actually, that's not entirely accurate. My one-way ticket was stamped Forgetsville, <laughs> which is just north of nowhere. The fuel for this journey came from what I knew best from my time in our suburban funhouse. Some call it dissipation. Others call it getting wrecked. I call it oblivion. Oblivion in search of the numb, or to be brutally honest, just plain dumb. As dumb as imagining that my escape route was in the vanguard of a new social revolution. Totally unaware of the ugly truth that my future had been hijacked by the only movie I'd ever known. A script with the most obvious and predictable plot line in the book. Namely, if it hurts, do whatever it takes to make it go away. At least for now. And there's no denying that us hippies were really in to the now. The general pattern of this version of freakdom was pretty simple. Essentially, hanging out, getting wrecked, chowing down different days in different ways, but inevitably ending up a little shy of where you started. Surprisingly, my headlong embrace of this flight no-fight treadmill also pointed me in the direction of what I've come to know as the promised land. This was also the path that led to my lifelong obsession with the power of stories. This is because these episodes of Stupor and gluttony also included heavy doses of soul, blues, acid rock, metal, country, R&B, gospel, folk, and whatever else was being channeled through those old car radios and thrift store stereos. Blasting out and through in continuous waves of one exhilarating, liberating, sonic groove marvel after another. Now... I'd always been beguiled by music. In fact, when I was in the third grade, my mother took note of this and had me try out for the National Cathedral Boys Choir. I'd like to say that getting in proved to be my immediate salvation, but like many things in life, the benefits of boy choirdom showed up much later. At the time, though, I hated it. I hated the three-day-a-week rehearsals and the two-hour Sunday services. I hated the purple vestments and the cute white collars. Most of all, 
I hated not having time to play baseball with my buds, which I returned to the minute my voice started to change. Like I said, the music bomb really hit me after I left high school and home. It was about this time when my friends, Alan, Arthur, and I started making regular visits to the Howard Theater, DC's version of the Apollo. I suppose you could say my latent condition was severely aggravated from repeated exposure to Otis, Marvin, Smokey, and the Marvelettes sweating and shaking on that stage. Whatever it was, it was a passion of a different order. Why then? I don't know. Maybe it was the perfect medicine for the moment, but as far as I was concerned, that pervasive, penetrating pulse of all that music was a goddamn miracle. All at once, a soothing balm, a shattering depth charge, and a transcendent window into other dimensions. A place to go here and not here at once, where I could bathe in the fuel and funk and flash of someone else's story. It was amazing. Not so much that it took me completely out of my stupor. That's not how this story goes, but it certainly planted a seed. Now, if you're still with me, you may be thinking, hey, this is supposed to be a show about the power of stories to change the way we think and act, which I'm also assuming you are thinking might be somewhat uplifting. So at this point, I just want to reassure you that it's coming. Story, story. Part two, as they say, life goes on. After a crash and burn interlude at the University of Maryland and some unfortunate encounters with the criminal justice and mental health systems, my luck most definitely fortified by my birth privilege, which gave me lots of do-overs, seemed to reemerge north of Toronto, Canada at a falling down farm that we called Buckhorn Center. Now, Buckhorn was a community of, I guess what you'd call, helping professionals and fellow travelers like me. Following the path of a freaky psychoanalyst named Fritz Perls. <laughs> Dr. Perls' new age thing was referred to as gestalt, which means... You, or we, are more than just the sum of our parts. The basic aim was helping troubled people move from broken to whole. This certainly made sense to me because I was definitely in need of some serious rebuilding. At first, Buckhorn was just a personal refuge, but... Eventually, it became my family and a kind of celebratory healing place for lots of folks who came there. Back then, the neighboring farmers called it a goddamn hippie commune. I called it home. Buckhorn was a community of helpers, makers, growers, and most importantly, builders. Early on, our first order of business was getting the place habitable, so we set to fixing and building. A rock wall, a garden, and 
outhouse for two, a big round dining room table for 16, a performance space and a geodesic dome painted orange, all in the short interlude between the melting snows of March and the first flakes of October 1972. Needless to say, that first year, it was all hands, in the dirt, and build, build, build. No time for pondering or wallowing or bitching. I loved it. This was just the place I needed for the funky seeds of my re-entry to find the soil and the water and the air needed to sprout and flower and fruit and... Surprise, surprise, seed again and again, sprouting roots and shoots, grabbing hold of whatever would help me make some sense and meaning of my upside-down world. And that was pretty much the deal for the eight of us that stuck it out through the winter. The sense and substance that we all craved was, of course, in all that making. The making and sharing, taking the rocks and building a wall together planting the seeds and growing the zucchini and corn and tomatoes together, harvesting the bounty and feasting as a family together, and of course, when the electricity was flowing, cranking up the stereo and boogieing together. Now, one of the bedrock understandings of the hippie universe was to coin a phrase, you can't always get what you want, but if you really need it, well, you can make it yourself. So, in no time at all, we found ourselves imagining that we could make our own music. For me, <laughs> this translated to long stretches with pen and paper, stealing, imagining, procuring, discovering words and rhymes and rhythms every time I found myself with an idle moment. Not that all those songs that I created were worth a hill of beans, but being lost in that world was an amazing deliverance from the underworld I was crawling out of. The coolest thing was that I was driving that magic bus. No, actually, I owned that bus, and no one could take it away. The great part, though, was that I was not alone on this journey. Far from it. Because each evening, Marty and Arthur and Dieti and I would gather in that big orange dome, humming a tune, connecting the rhymes and the stories with the chords and harmonies and beats rising up and making music together, our music, our story coming alive in the songs over and over. Like I said, the community we were building was called Buckhorn. So was the band. Like many good things, Buckhorn, the healing place, and the band came and went, but the legacy and the lessons left a taste that would not fade. Like I said, for me, it was akin to an addiction. I had come up there caught in a stupid, vicious circle, snake-eating-its-tail story, getting my hands dirty, sharing responsibility and the two-hole outhouse becoming a maker and a partner had smashed that narrative to smithereens. And you know, <laughs> as hard as I tried, I just couldn't put that poor me pity party back together. I was stuck with a new saga, and that was it. Change the story, change the world. My world, at least. Story, story. 
Part 3. Change, change the story. It's the spring of 1985, and I'm standing next to three pottery wheels in the corner of what used to be a storage closet in the bowels of a place called the California Medical Facility. Now, although it sounds like a hospital, CMF, as it was known, is actually a prison with a few bits and pieces of hospital thrown in for sick prisoners. My path there was circuitous with one constant, that music. Lots of songs and bands birthed and forgotten, lots of late-night crummy bars and free beer, but also odd jobs like house painting and newspaper delivery, because, well, you know, you have to eat. There was also a weird job with the city of Sacramento called Cita Arts. Now, Cita Arts was hiring artists to work in unlikely places like senior centers, parks, public housing, and, well, the Sacramento County Jail. Amazingly, it was funded by the U.S. Department of Labor. CETA, that's C-E-T-A, or Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, was actually a national jobs program. Hiring artists was definitely not the intention, but lots of artists were jobless. And they did get hired to the tune of upwards of $300 million a year, which was and still is America's largest public investment in the arts. It affected hundreds of thousands of people in and out of the arts. Here's some of them talking about their experience in a 1970s Department of Labor documentary on the program. Arts were a rather risky notion and pretty much stereotyped as being a flighty group of non-business folk. Most people don't really take artists too seriously. They think that we all live under rocks. Well, the kind of support that we received from the administrators in the CETA program have been unlimited encouragement. We have in the CETA artist program the WPA of yesteryear. Hundreds of people just eager to get into the program. People lining up in the streets, uh, something like 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, some of us slept overnight. Um, in order to get in to, just to get a paper for an appointment to be interviewed. Having worked closely with CETA training programs, that I can testify to the tremendous effect in this. Now, I'm not rich by any means, but I'm somehow staying alive. It has given many people an opportunity to learn what a full day's work is all about, to teach some of the artists some, some work habits that they might not previously have had. It's more of enjoyment, it's me giving myself, it's something that I'm gaining personally from it. The Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, popularly known as CETA, has affected the lives of many Americans. The most spirited of these programs is related to the arts and the artist. CETA was conceived to provide training, education, work experience, and other support services to eligible people in an effort to prepare the jobless for unsubsidized... The disembodied baritone of the federal government notwithstanding, the partnerships we forged in Sacramento were both uh, groundbreaking and challenging. They taught us a whole lot in a hurry about what artists need to do to build trust 
with new communities and neighborhood organizations. To be sure, CETA was pretty serious work, but it was also playful. At one point, someone suggested we needed a CETA song. Here's what we came up with. CETA, oh my CETA, you're so sweet, you done me good, you done me good. Anyways, that strange gig somehow landed me in prison, newly hired as the head of something called Arts in Corrections. The idea was pretty simple. Idle inmates, as the prisoners were called, mixed with overcrowding, made for big trouble. So the thought was, give them something to do. The art part was the inspiration of a force of nature named Eloise Smith, who, given her extraordinary political savvy and influence, literally forced the Department of Corrections to let her organization, the William James Association, set up shop at CMF. So there I was, with a team of five teaching artists who at the time didn't know a whole hell of a lot about the complex and brutal netherworld that surrounded our closet of a studio, but we we did know a few things about art making. One of those things was that our students were, were really getting turned on, literally, and they just loved it. We loved it too, but this was not some kind of woo-woo artsy magic going on here. These were the kinds of breakthroughs all of us had experienced in some way in our own growth as artists. For me, it was like buckhorn when my clumsy efforts of music making started giving way to muscle memory and it just started to flow. In those instances, we could see prison artists kind of tuning in, you know, moving from static into clear reception. Like when one of our guitar students said, whoa, stuff is just happening here all by itself and the actor who described himself as being so inside his character that he forgot where he was and the songwriter who came to us with complete songs that he had dreamed the night before. Here's the way it unfolded for a CMF lifer named Marcus, who, when I met him, was looking down at a spinning lump of clay that he'd been struggling with to center on a rotating head of an old-school kick wheel. There was no doubt he was into it, but I could see that it hadn't been going well. He was really tense, sweating and pressing in on that clay. Hunched over with his hands together like that, he looked like someone praying really hard. It was too hard, though. He'd been told not to manhandle the thing, but every time it started to wobble, his muscles flexed with predictable results. He was not smiling when he glanced up at Jerry, our ceramics instructor. <laughs> Jerry placed a hand on Marcus's shoulder and told him, hey man, you're doing fine, just, just relax. Marcus shook his head and said, easy for you to say. This was Marcus's fourth visit to the studio. So far he had been, let's just say, frustrated. It was obvious he had thought it was going to be a snap. He said as much after watching Jerry throw a perfect little bowl in a few minutes. And this morning he announced to us that was why he was back, to get that thing to happen for me. But it was not going according to plan, and he looked really tired. 
this was not necessarily a bad thing. As his kicking on the wheel slowed, he seemed to kind of reset, recognizing this was going to be a different kind of work. Not heavy and not hard. What he was going to have to do to turn that spinning thing into a pot was an almost unnatural combination of purpose, you know, will, and the opposite, letting go. And in between pressing and releasing that was equal parts mind and muscle. As he moved his hands inward, the mound in front of him slowly began to rise. He seemed kind of surprised, and it was obvious he was trying to stay cool. It was, it was working, but he knew he could lose it at any minute, just like he'd seen Jerry do the day before. He pushed his thumbs down into the whirling muck, trying to keep the inside and the outside in tune. In that instant, it was amazing. A simple bowl found its form as his kicking rhythm slowed, a deep moan seemed to rise up from the space between his hunching form and the bottom of a newly born pot. Marcus's moment of truth had arrived. His story had shifted a little. A prisoner had become a potter. Later, he described what it felt like in Eric Tierman's Academy Award-nominated documentary, Art and the Prison Crisis. It's even helped me to know myself. I didn't even realize it, that the moods I'd gone into it, I got amazed by it so many times. When I look it up, I says, well, that's really me. That's weird, you know? But it comes out. Nevertheless, it does come out. And this is why the art project is, is if, <laughs> it's something to, I don't know, it, I like it. it. I depend on it. It's like a crave. It's like a what? A crave, a crave for food. It's a food that feeds you, feeds the inside and feeds the mind. Over the next decade, these instances played out over and over in prisons all over the state of California. By the time I left the program in the middle 90s, 10,000 prison artists were making pots and paintings and songs and plays and dances, even movies in every prison in the state. Our research showed that we were helping to slow the revolving door that characterized the California prison experience at that time. That was the good news. The bad news was, as a result of the state's unconscionable prison building explosion, our program had expanded from 12 to 28 institutions. Story, story. Part four. In the U.S., prisons are generally located in out-of-the-way places. As you can imagine, art in prison is kind of an oddity, so every once in a while I would get invited to have lunch and tell stories at one of the small-town rotary clubs near the prisons. Needless to say, these were skeptical folks. I would usually introduce myself as an ambassador from another planet. I describe my planet as a place where truth, beauty, trust, excellence, tenderness, responsibility, vulnerability, color, sensitivity, choice, companionship, cooperation, and physical contact had all been banished. I said, living in prison was kind of like running a marathon in 100 degree heat with no water. 
By mile 26, if you survive, cut off from all these things I just listed that we take for granted, your soul is pretty much sucked dry. I also reminded them that as citizens of California at the time, we were investing around $4 billion a year in this planetary system and that 95% of these parched prisoners would ultimately be returning to Earth to live with them in their communities. Then I describe what happens when these dried up souls get seriously hydrated. In other words, I shared what happens when a prisoner becomes addicted to art. I would usually follow this with a quote from James Rowland, who at the time was the director of corrections. Rowland said, mastering art skills requires patience, self-discipline, and long-term commitment. These attributes are basic to an inmate's ability to function responsibly upon release. Through programs like Arts in Corrections, we have a much greater chance of making a productive citizen out of a probable repeat offender. With fewer crimes and fewer victims, we all win. That generally got their attention. With encounters like this, my prison gig turned out to be much more than just, I guess what you'd call an inside job. It also introduced me to many hundreds of under-the-radar artists working to make change in places art schools and conservatories never imagined their graduates would be earning their keep. Places like hospitals, senior centers, housing projects, youth programs, and of course, all those jails and prisons. Sometime near the middle of my corrections adventure, one of my partners in crime, Susan Hill, called me with an intriguing idea. Susan ran one of our partner programs called ArtReach at UCLA. She said, you know, there's a program at the National Endowment for the Arts that supports conferences. I think it's time we had one of those. My skeptical self said, on prison art? Yeah, she said, that and much more. How about a conference for artists working in all the invisible other places out there across the country? Well, the NEA liked Susan's idea, so in August of 1986, we convened the Art in Other Places conference at UCLA. I guess you could say it was kind of an arts-infused do-gooder Woodstock. Over four days, more than 200 souls came together, meeting, hugging, breaking bread, dancing, singing, making art, most of all, sharing stories with their sisters and brothers about their work in the shadows. It was, it was just totally cool. It was also incredibly informative. By that I mean that really we had no idea what had been going on out there in the hidden corners of the art and community world. From what we could tell, it appeared that all the energy and learning that had been unleashed by the big but short-lived Department of Labor CETA explosion had planted seeds all over the country that we were only now bearing fruit, lots of fruit. So here it was five years after the fact, this unplanned serendipitous government investment in artists working in communities and social institutions had spawned what was now looking like a movement. 
By the end of our gathering at UCLA, we had collected a mountain of documentation on artists and programs from all over the country. We had photos, videos, reports, research, and most importantly, we had lots of artists' stories on tape. It was a treasure trove. We had made a commitment to the NEA to produce some kind of a report, but we knew to really tell the story of what was going on out there, we had to do more, much more. Well, the name of the book that eventually emerged was Surprise, Surprise, Art in Other Places, with a subtitle, Artists at Work in America's Community and Social Institutions. It featured 22 artists telling stories about their work with hospital patients, prisoners, the elderly, disabled people, people with mental illness, and others. And although it took me three years to write it, I think it helped make this extraordinary work a little more visible. So after I left Corrections, I bought a tie, got my bureaucratic chops together, running an outfit called the California State Summer School for the Arts, and then directing the Walker Art Center's Education Department. I also started a little side project with some colleagues that eventually became, well, the main event. We called it the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Uh, that's a mouthful to be sure, but it had a pretty simple mission, which was basically to continue telling the amazing stories of artists working to build caring, capable, and equitable communities. Over the past couple of decades, the center has done just that, producing research and case studies, articles and books on arts-based community development and social change efforts all over the world. One project called Art and Upheaval took me on an eight-year global journey documenting artists working in communities facing intense, real-time conflict and trauma. The book we produced from that includes stories of artists making change in some very hard places. Working with youth in post-Khmer Rouge, Cambodia, pushing back and eventually winning against Serbia's Slobodan Milosevic, rebuilding community in Watts, California, and struggling for peace in the final years of Northern Ireland's troubles. Another collaboration with the University of Massachusetts and the Mississippi Arts Commission helped us turn what we'd been learning through all these stories into a training curriculum that we've been sharing with creative change agents across the country since 1998. As I said up front, from my perspective, change the story, change the world is not hyperbole. It's something I've come to know from my own experience and the work of hundreds of transformative makers I've been privileged to count as my colleagues and friends. My main work as an educator, documenter, advocate, and artist has always been to spread not only the good word about this work, but also the ingenious and sometimes surprising strategies and tools embodied in the art and social change story. So, this podcast will continue down that path. Some of what we'll be sharing will dip back into those other places like prisons, hospitals, neighborhood centers, and alternative schools. Others will take us to communities where really different histories, cultures, and circumstances will provide completely new contextual lenses for exploring and understanding the power of human creativity to transform. Along the way, we'll hear from some of my heroes, like John Bergman, who's probably worked in more prisons than anybody in the country, in or out of the arts. 
and Lily A., the visionary founder of Philadelphia's Village of Arts and Humanities, and uh, more recently, Barefoot Artists. We'll tap into the wisdom of colleagues like psychologist, songwriter, and visual artist Barry Marcus, who pioneered something he called creative culture as a powerful driver for youth development. And Mary Cohen, whose incredible prison choirs bring beauty to the ugliest corners of the world. We'll also hear from people I think of as creative chess masters, like Eric Takashita, who's been placing his talents as an artist, policymaker, and philanthropist in service to equitable change, and my lifelong good friend, Lenny Sloan, an activist, performer, impresario, and historian whose entire career has unfolded like a social change musical. So that's what we're up to. I say we because I'm pointing to all the partners that make this little experiment possible. We're doing this because we believe that meeting the obvious and daunting challenges of this century is going to require a revolution of thought and deed. In essence, a new set of stories powerful enough to change beliefs and behaviors. We're also doing it with the recognition that change the story, change the world is not a one-way street to healing and reconciliation and transformation. If history teaches us anything, it's that the power of stories are regularly used to great effectiveness by the forces of tyranny and injustice. So from time to time, we'll be exploring this dark side as well. At the end of the day, our aim is to inform, and yes, entertain. But we also hope that each episode will contribute a thread or two to your own evolving story as you make your way in the second line procession of our complex, crazy, and ever-changing world. We hope you will join us for our next episode of Change the Story, change the world. Before we sign off, we'd like to thank our partners for this episode, past and present, particularly my mentors, Vern McKee, Warren Robinson, and Carla Cleveland, Buckhorn family members, Brenda Pellier and Ingrid Robinson, bandmates, Marty Cohen, Diane Pellier, Arthur Cohen, and Alan Friedman, Partners in Crime, Susan Hill, Lenny Sloan, and Barry Marcus, my sibs, Casey and Nani, and all the folks at the William James Association. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It is written and directed by Bill Cleveland. Our theme music and soundscape is composed by Judy Munson. We invite you to join the conversation, check out show notes, and learn more about the center at artandcommunity.com. Well, that was then, specifically July 2020, and this is now. Next week, we'll be plunging into our third season, not with a bang, but with a gift from one of America's cultural treasures, choreographer, author, activist, educator, and self-described heretic, Liz Lerman. So, tune in next week, share the show, subscribe, and please, stay well, do good, and spread the good word. <laughs>